Hi, I'm Cooper Knowlton. And I'm Lee Bergstein. And we're the hosts of Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar. And tonight on the podcast, our guest is David Shanus. I said that correctly? Good. Excellent. You got it, Cooper. Podcast over. <laughs> <laughs> and David is a sole practitioner based in Manhattan. And his practice largely focuses on civil rights law. He's a former associate at Hughes Hubbard and started his practice two years ago, three years ago. A little over two. Great. And tonight we are drinking Chimay. That's right. Which I have yet to try. I'm going to try it right now. Brace yourself. I think it's really good. Brewed by monks. Is that right? Yeah. It's actually good. Yeah, it is good. It's very smooth and light. I like it. What do you mean? What does that mean, brewed by monks? It's literally brewed by monks? Yeah, so it's one of, I don't remember how many there are. I think seven Trappist breweries. Okay. And they are all run, you know, full-time monasteries, run by monks, and they make beer to to help fund the whatever monastery. It's got to be a fun monastery to work at. Yeah. David, in the email you wrote to me, you said that you're a home brewer as well. That is true, although I don't know if I can claim that title anymore because ever since I started my own practice, I have not brewed once. Really? Yes. What is what does the process entail? It can be simple or complicated. I, over time, I made it more and more complicated by buying more equipment and doing more stuff. Um, but basically, you start with grain and you... Uh, First, have to extract the sugars from the grain. So, first, you have to uh, kind of prepare the enzymes in the grain. To you're just doing this like all in your in your apartment. Yeah, in his monastery. Exactly. <laughs> yes, it is a monastic activity. It, it's very sure. zen. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was it's very relaxing. I do miss it, but just don't have time. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So you, I mean, take the grain. You extract from it what's called wort, which is sugar water, basically. You boil it, you add hops, and then you take it out. You put it in a fermenter. You wait about three weeks or so. Huh. Uh, you throw in yeast. Uh-huh. forgot that part. And uh, eventually, you have and would you give it? would you give it to friends? Yeah. You good? Yeah. I did. I did. Interesting. So a lot of people, people are always asking me that, and people are, my friends are very disappointed that I'm not brewing anymore. It'd be like a good end of the year, like as a as a gift, gift to give to people. It would. It was, and it would be. But in fact, I moved about six months ago, and the home brewing equipment did not make the trip with me. So oh, wow. So it's done. It's, well, for now, for now. For now. Yeah, I need I need a few more associates, and then <laughs> then I can just go brew. Oh, I thought you were gonna make them brew. Hire associates. <laughs> That's probably to, a better idea. Yeah, David, where'd you grow up? I was born in Southern California in a town called San Dimas, which, if you're of a certain generation, you know is from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I see <laughs> coming back. I see one one person it's coming back. Um, Bill and Ted's. Is that right? Yeah, they're making a third one. Oh, actually, I did see that. I support it. I support it. <laughs> um, yeah, they just made Super Troopers too, which was which I saw very. Was it good? It was much better than I expected really? it to be. I recommend huh. it. Um, but uh, I moved to Long Island when I was ten years old, and so I've been in New York ever since. Where in Long Island? Roslyn. Okay, I'm from the South Shore. Okay, Roslyn's up north. It is. Yeah, it is. Now we have to duel. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I was there for most through most of high school, and then I went away 
for the end of high school and from there, college, all in New what York. Did your, what did your parents do? Uh, they're both retired. My father uh, was a physician, and my mother taught biochemistry and genetics. I'm the only non-scientist in my family. Well, you're a home brewer. That's true. <laughs> It's all chemistry. I knew when you said enzymes that there was going to be science in the background. So I don't even know what an <laughs> enzyme is. Growing up, was law school something you thought about doing? Never. Never. So how did it? What What led to that? Um. Uh, so after college, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to go into law enforcement. I wanted to uh, be an FBI agent yeah. or maybe. Uh, one of the other federal law enforcement agencies, ATF, DEA. I applied to a number of them. Um, I also applied to the NYPD, thinking that that would be a stepping stone. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, I'm very, very, very glad that none of those things panned out <laughs> right away because uh, I would have done them and I would have gone in a very different direction. But uh, so while I was waiting for those applications to go through, I worked at the Manhattan DA's office and over the next two years, I decided that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a prosecutor. What were you doing at the Manhattan DA's office? I worked in a, a little bureau that did kind of a bunch of random tasks within the DA's office. They did uh, fugitive extraditions. They did psychiatric litigation. Okay. They did something called the Narcotics Eviction Program, which is a, a civil court initiative where they help landlords evict drug dealers from their apartments, mm -hmm. and there were a few other like little random things. They called it special projects. Okay, the miscellaneous bureau of Basically. the Manhattan DA's office. Basically, yeah. Anytime you have special in the name of something, it's not <laughs> not a good thing. <laughs> so from there, you applied to law school while you were there? Yep. And where did you end up going to law school? Went to NYU. Okay. Stayed in New York. Tell us a little bit about the NYU experience. Uh, I liked NYU as school goes. I was never a school guy. Um, I never liked sitting in classes. I always wanted to be out doing something. So uh, school was tough for me. Law school was probably the best because I'd had some time off. I was very driven to uh, you know, pursue the path that I had chosen in criminal law. And so I, you know, I, I buckled down for law school. But uh, – NYU was great. I had a lot of great professors. They do a lot of uh, really good criminal law um, you know, classes. I had Brian Stevenson for a class, uh, which was amazing. I took a class with Derek Bell, um, you know, both legends uh, in their respective fields. Did you want to go to NYU largely because you thought staying in New York would help you get a job at the DA's office, or was it the best law school that you got into? Were you applying across the country? What was what went into that process? Um, I did apply to not across the country. I applied all on the East Coast. Um, yeah, I mean NYU and Columbia were probably the two, I guess, highest ranked schools that I got into. So I was mostly choosing between the two of them, mm -hmm. and I just vibe wise, I felt felt better at NYU right away. So I said, this is where I'm supposed to be. And then at what point did the did you think about going into big law as opposed to becoming a prosecutor? How did that change happen? Uh, well, law school has a way of, uh, sure of funneling folks in there, doesn't it? <laughs> um, 
yeah, I, I knew that I wanted to try it. I mean, you hear so much about it and, you know, it's supposedly, you know, the most prestigious and wonderful thing to do. Um, so I said, well, why not try it for a summer, um, as most people do after their second year. And that's what I did. That was my first foray. But, you know, schools like NYU make it very easy to do. Yeah. It's insane how much easier it is to get a big law job than almost anything else. Yeah. I, my experience is exactly the same. I had no interest in going into big law, and I went to Michigan, and next thing I knew, I was in big law. Yeah, they were pretty much handing those jobs out. I mean, the market has gotten much worse since then, and jobs are uh, much harder to come by. But at that point, things were – I mean, anybody could have a big law job coming from certain schools. Yeah, you hear stories now about, about law students making $40,000 a year – out of law school, I think the market has changed pretty significantly in the last, you know, six to eight years. Yeah. What was it about Hughes? You went directly to Hughes Hubbard, right? I did. What yep. was it about Hughes Hubbard that attracted you to that firm? Um, you know, it was there was a lot of it that was feel there too. Um, the white collar group. You know, this was at a point when I first went there to summer that I still thought I was going to go be a prosecutor after law school. So I wanted to go somewhere that had a good white-collar group, mm-hmm. and I met the folks at Hughes-Hubbard. They had had and have a fairly small white-collar group, but I really liked the people there, and that was the that was the clincher for me. Had you stayed in touch with anyone from the Manhattan DA's office during this time? Were you, were you keeping connections I there? did, yeah. I still talk to my old boss and bosses, and uh, I still keep in touch with some of them. Were they trying to persuade you to work there over the summer? Um, instead of going to big law, yeah. no, I think they said, you know, how do you turn that down? Yeah. You know, just do it for a summer though. <laughs> Don't sell your soul. I let them down. <laughs> we got drug dealers to evict. That's right. Back. That's right. Did you like being an, an associate in big law? Uh, I really liked the people I worked with at Hughes Hubbard. I liked the work I did at Hughes Hubbard. I think from, you know, I know many people who went into big law and had experiences that they did not love. But overall, uh, despite some ups and downs, I have had a very positive experience there. And I think I'm very grateful for that time. I saw in your bio that while you were at Hughes Hubbard, you spent a year doing pro bono work, or was it a couple months doing pro bono work with the with the city of New York? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a, a shorter term thing. It was actually right when I came back from my clerkship. Okay. Um, so before I had a crazy full docket of work, mm-hmm. uh, they encouraged us to go do this program where you basically just churn out depositions um, one after another, and you know they try to get young associates' feet wet that way. Um, you were at Corp Council, right? Corp Council, yeah. Now often my adversary <laughs> in, in probably seventy percent of my cases. Yeah. It's funny because you were thinking about going to to the FBI or the NYPD, and then you wanted to go to the Manhattan DA's office, and you kind of worked at Corp Council, and now you're, I know, what you're fighting against these institutions. We'll get to that, I guess. But um, tell us a little bit about the your clerkship. My clerkship was wonderful. Uh, I clerked for a judge named Rosalind Moskov, who is in the Eastern District, and I was her first law clerk, uh, which made the experience really, really special. She, did you clerk right out of law school or did you clerk No, I was after? at Hughes Hubbard for a little over a year. Okay. And then I started applying for clerkships um, for the following year. 
you know, in the fall of, I guess it was 2007, I was applying for clerkships and then Judge Moskoff's uh, nomination got confirmed by the Senate and very quickly she needed to hire. Uh, it, it so happened that I had interned for a judge who knew her and managed to get my application to her and uh, it worked out that I was the first man in the door. So that was uh, a great experience, you know, starting with her from square one and figuring out kind of alongside her how to be a federal judge. It was a great learning experience for me. Do you remember anything about the interview with her getting the job? So she knew, you know, it, it was fairly uh, smooth sailing for me because I had not only the, the connection with uh, another judge who I had worked for and who could sort of vouch for my work product, but uh, Judge Moskoff is a career prosecutor or was a career prosecutor before taking the bench, and she began at the Manhattan DA's office and uh, knew my old boss and you know a lot of the people who I'd worked with there, so that also was, uh, I think, an important uh, connection. Sure. When your clerkship was over, did any part of you think about maybe now I should go back to the DA's office or maybe now I should do something differently or were you always going to go back to Hughes Hubbard? You know, once I, once I started practicing at Hughes Hubbard, I kind of, and I'm talking about after law school now, kind of thought the DA's office was, was out. Um, you know, I was really focusing on U.S. attorney's offices at that point because I was mainly practicing in federal court. You know, it's what I had really kind of learned to to do. Um, And then, of course, clerking, you know, probably 90% of law clerks will tell you that what they want to do after is go to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, So that certainly pushed me in that direction. And my the judge who I clerked for also was the U.S. Attorney prior to uh, taking the bench. So she certainly encouraged that as well. Gotcha. And what kind of work were you primarily doing while you were at Hughes Hubbard? I was, you know, you start off kind of doing whatever they throw you at, uh, but I, you know, immediately gravitated toward the white collar group, and I, you know, from the beginning was trying to get in there and get work from them uh, as much as possible. So it wasn't always easy, but eventually I managed to to get hooked up with them and do pretty much exclusively white collar. Can you, when you say you were trying to get work from them and you were trying to be involved with the white collar group, can you talk about what you were what you were doing for? You know, junior associates who are out there at, at law firms trying to get involved with a certain field. It doesn't have to be white collar. Any division that they want to be more involved in. Is there any kind of advice that you can give for for those people? Yes, talk talk to the lawyers in that group. Yeah, that's step number one, and probably the step that most people can't get past. And it was hard for me. Um, you know, I talked to my wife is now a mid level associate at a big law firm, and you know. I've had this conversation with her as well. Um, there's really no substitute for going and, and getting to know those folks and just right. walk, knocking on their door and saying, you know, I'm really interested in what you do. I'd love to work work with you and, you know, reminding them of that every once in a while, trying to get to know them. Um, that's the best way to go. And you'd be surprised how few people actually do it. Leaving some homebrew beer on their desk. <laughs> that never hurts. <laughs> actually, at Hughes Hubbard, we used to have a homebrew night once uh, once or twice a month. Really? Yeah. 
where wow. every, partners and associates would get together and sample each other's homebrews. It's wow. Mostly just me and one other homebrewer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was well attended. That's funny. <laughs> Sounds like AV club at, at high school. Yeah, it was probably about as nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> I was a member of AV club. Oh, so. my bad. <laughs> Did you find that Hughes Hubbard had good pro bono opportunities? They were great with that. And yes, that was another uh, draw from the very beginning. Um, you know, every law firm touts how wonderful they are about pro bono. Uh, I, I know from knowing many people at many different law firms, that's not always the case. Um, Hughes Hubbard was great about giving people those opportunities. And um, although I would get chastised and threatened from time to time for how much pro bono I was doing and not enough billable work. Um, you know, they were still very supportive of it and um, really gave me a lot of resources to do the work I wanted to do, not just through their established uh, relationships, but to go out and find stuff on my own. And correct me if I'm wrong, it was a pro bono case that you took at Hughes Hubbard that sort of started you off on this path to doing civil rights work today. Absolutely, yes. So can you talk, tell us that story? And yes, Rudy, Rudy. <laughs> uh, my one client um, who I started the practice with began as a pro bono case. Actually, the first case I got after I came back from clerking in 2010 one of the partners came up to me and said, oh, I was talking to this judge about doing some pro bono work and seeing if she had any trials that we could participate in. And she said, no, I don't have any trials, but what I do have is this habeas corpus petition. Would you like to work on that? And uh, I said, oh, my God, you know, I just came from doing two years of habeas corpus petitions. Yeah. Uh, did not expect to go to big law and be doing that. And that started, uh, you know, eight-year saga that – took us through various federal courts and state courts and eventually led to uh, my client, Rudy Cazada, having his conviction vacated after he spent 24 years in prison. Wow. That's Can you tell impressive. us a little bit about, give us a little bit of the background on the case? Yeah, it was, uh, so the case was uh, the killing of a man named Jose Rosado. It happened in East New York in October 1991. And there was a drive-by shooting. Uh, he was killed. Sometime after the shooting, uh, a man who had a personal conflict with uh, Rudy Cazada went and told uh, police that Rudy had been the shooter. Uh, Rudy was with other people and had many alibi witnesses to attest to that. Um, but he was very quickly arrested and indicted. Um, but that witness died. Uh, while the case was awaiting trial. And so the prosecution was left without a witness, uh, except that they had also spoken to this witness's friend who had come with him to the DA's office and, uh, and to the NYPD. And they went and they found him, and he said, you know, I, I did not see who fired the shots. I yeah. can't testify for you. And they said, yeah, we think you did. And eventually, they uh, went and got what's called the material witness order, which is an order that allows them to arrest the witness and bring them before the judge uh, to determine whether they should be held uh, as a witness. Um, but at the time, what they did in, in Brooklyn was 
and you you know about material witness orders, I'm sure, from your time in the sure. DA's office. Um, at the time, what they did was they basically got the material witness order and they used that to extrajudicially, you know, snatch someone off the street and hold them mm-hmm. in their own kind of private jail system, um, where he says they threatened him and uh, coerced him to testify falsely against Rudy, and that's what got him convicted. So many years later, he recanted, and around the same time, uh, federal prosecutors were proffering a another uh, defendant in another case who was uh, a drug gang hitman, and he you know, one of the things you do when you proffer is you have to confess to every crime you've ever committed. And he confessed to many murders and he said, yeah, and this was one of them. And, you know, Rudy was arrested for it, but he didn't do it. So with those new facts, you would think it would be easy to get someone out of prison, but uh, it took approximately, I think, 14 years from that point to, to actually make it happen. That's insane. And so you were working on the, you were doing the habeas petition um, throughout the, was there then a new, was there a retrial or anything like that? Or what, this was all while you were at Hughes Hubbard? All while I was at Hughes Hubbard, yeah. So we started in the district court, then we, he had actually previously filed a habeas petition. So then we had to go to the Second Circuit, get permission to file a second habeas petition, um, which we got, came back to the district court. We did discovery for a couple of years, um, found out a lot of very helpful information, um, including a lot of stuff about the material witness order, which previously had not been disclosed. And in fact, uh, the prosecutors had said there was no material witness order. Um, and eventually we had to go back to state court to present this new evidence. And we had a full-blown evidentiary hearing there. After the evidentiary hearing, uh, some more information that had been withheld started flowing out from the prosecutor's office. And that became its own debacle, uh, which resulted eventually in the prosecutors doing a search of emails. And in their email search, they came across an email that showed a deliberate attempt to hide and lie about the material witness order. And the same day they found that, I got a phone call saying, we're going to vacate your client's conviction. And this was, when you kept saying we, was we a team at Hughes Hubbard? Were you working with legal aid attorneys as well? Who else was sort of on that team? Uh, It was a bunch of attorneys at Hughes Hubbard, Sarah Cave, who was one of the pro bono partners there, uh, was working on it. I did the evidentiary hearing with a partner named Mark Weinstein, who's a former AUSA um, and was great to be in the courtroom with, and uh, a number of associates, Aaron Deers, Gabby Vasquez. I can give, give shout-outs. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and how much did this kind of – would you say this – largely dominated your experience at Hughes Hubbard or was it sort of just one thing that was like a common thread that was would pop up at times and then you would touch it for a few months and then would pop up again I mean I was always working on it uh-huh. Rudy was was a, a daily figure in my life uh-huh. um, and by that I mean he called me every day well, also once you realize that this guy is innocent it's probably hard to put the file down when you know this guy is sitting in jail for something that he didn't do yeah right? Yeah, I mean, I was very passionate about it. Uh, you know, certainly in the grand scheme of all the work I was doing at Hughes Hubbard, this always was the most important thing I was doing, although, you know, billable versus pro bono work, it's not always seen that way. So um, when I said I was getting chastised and threatened for doing too much pro bono work, this you know, this yeah. is really the period I'm talking about. Um, I was putting a lot of time and, 
and energy into Rudy's case, but still trying to carry my weight. Was there a moment during the investigation where you realized, oh, wow, this guy is actually innocent? Because I'm, I'm sure you went into it thinking, I'm doing a habeas petition, but, you know, the DA had a witness and who saw him do it. Absolutely. Uh, right. So it, it, you have yeah. to go into it thinking he was he was convicted properly, right? So was there a moment where the, where the light switch went off and went on, rather, and you said, wow, this guy is actually innocent? When we found out about the material witness order, and, you know, I know that doesn't directly relate to his innocence, but the recanting witness, you know, anytime a witness recants, it's viewed with extreme skepticism by prosecutors, by judges. Um, So, you know, a recantation is rarely enough. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he told this story about being locked up and held in a hotel and, you know, the prosecutors had said, you know, that's ridiculous. That never happened. So the day that we got that piece of paper, you know, I thought that this guy opened up and, you know, Rudy was going to be Rudy was going to be free any mm-hmm. minute, um, you know, and it, it corroborated. It showed that the recanting witness was telling the truth and the prosecutors were lying. Right. Um, so, you know, the prospect of prosecutors affirmatively lying about something was uh, was a pretty foreign idea to me at the time. Did anything happen to the prosecutors involved in that case? One of them got fired, um, and that's it. Were you still looking to, during this process, with, did this kind of color your view of law enforcement, or were you still looking to maybe work for the U.S. Attorney's Office? Uh, well, so I had been applying for jobs at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I got caught up in the pretty much the worst time to want to be applying to, to a U.S. Attorney's Office. There was a hiring freeze for like two or three years there, which was like the prime time for me to be going there. So every once in a while, they would have like one spot open up. You know, they would get special permission to hire one person. Um, and, you know, I went for those spots, but I didn't get them. And eventually, uh, I kind of thought that that window had passed. So I certainly wasn't thinking about going and being a civil rights lawyer at that point. But uh, eventually, I, I thought you know, probably won't end up going to a U.S. attorney's office. Did, um, when they decided to vacate his uh, conviction, did ha- at, you were still at Hughes Hubbard at that point? Yep. And then tell us about leaving Hughes, the decision to leave Hughes Hubbard. You left Hughes Hubbard to take his case, right? To take his civil case? Correct, yeah. So after he got out, um, he obviously had a substantial civil case, uh, for being wrongfully imprisoned for 24 years, and he asked whether Hughes Hubbard would, you know, keep representing him in that. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, including the fact that Hughes Hubbard doesn't really do, you know, uh, plaintiff side civil rights litigation, uh, they thought that it wasn't a good idea. And so Rudy said, "Well, what about you? Would you do it?" And for some reason, I said yes. <laughs> Uh, no, I wanted to see it through to the very end, and you know it, that the timing of that coincided with the point where I'm, you know, I think I was like a ninth year associate or a tenth year associate, and you know, what am I going to do from here? Um, and I had to make a decision about which way my career was going to go. And as insane as the idea seemed to me at the time, I I decided to make that leap and go in a did you have any trepidation about taking – because obviously you probably didn't have any experience doing that type of work either. 
Um, Doing it, no. Although, you know, from clerking, sure. we, we saw a lot of those cases. Mm-hmm. And I was always, I always enjoyed them the most. I actually, although I sort of jokingly uh, complained about doing a habeas case, habeas corpus cases and civil rights cases were always my favorite kind to work on as a clerk. Um, and even as that was going on, it still never occurred to me that I would ever possibly practice in either of those areas. Uh, now it's all I do. But uh, so I had some familiarity with it that way. But um, and you, you know, had I'd, such an intimate understanding of the case, right, which is was, probably right. more important than anything else. When you talk about litigation, understanding the facts inside and out, yes. Trump's understanding the law inside and out in my mind for litigation. Yes, it was that was a huge advantage, and you know I was fortunate to uh, have other you know great practitioners in this field who advised me and helped me along the way. So. So you left Hughes Hubbard and immediately started the law office of David Janus. Immediately. And yep. th- that was your only client. Yep. One so client. Jerry Maguire. <laughs> exactly. Who's with me? <laughs> Rudy's with me. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, you know, Rudy's case uh, wrapped up, you know, some like six to nine months ago. And I said to myself, what am I going to do without Rudy as a client? It sort of feels, feels weird. But we still talk frequently. So he's still he's still around. Was he happy with without telling us what the result was? Was he happy with the result of the, of the case? Uh, I'm happy to tell you what the result was. Okay. And he he was very happy yeah. happy with it. Uh, he got settlements totaling uh, 14.5 million dollars, and he moved back to the Dominican Republic where he can live out the rest of his life in peace and happiness. I hope. That's amazing. And since then, how have you gone about getting the the rest of your business, the rest of your cases? You know, I'm often asked that question, and it's funny, I don't really have an answer for it. But I, you know, the cases just, you know, referrals, I I don't, you know, advertise or really promote myself. Um, You know, I've gotten referrals from big law lawyers. I think the people who I know in big law, you know, they don't know that many plaintiff side civil rights lawyers. So I'm thought of... um, you know, from time to time in in that respect. And, you know, I, I'm pretty active in bar organizations and, you know, I've gotten some work that way, but I've been fortunate that uh, the work has just seemed to come. Also, um, once you have a, a big success in any kind of post-conviction or, lot, uh, or civil letters, rights I case, imagine. you start getting a lot of letters. So, yeah. um, you know, and I have gotten some clients that way, mm-hmm. uh, although... You have to go through a lot of letters to, right. to find the diamond in the rough. But. And, and what's that process like? How long does the screening process take to sort of know that it's a case worth taking? It depends. I mean, sometimes you know right away that something is, is going nowhere. Um, you know, when people write to me from prison, I try to at least get in touch with them and talk to them, which is a tall order because I get a lot of those letters, um, and, you know, give them my two cents about either either why I want to learn more and maybe take their case or why I don't think, you know, their case is for me. Um, and most of them, even the ones who I turned down, are, are very appreciative to get that sure. response. How do you, you write them back and tell them to call you? Is that what you do? Write them back or, yeah, I'll usually begin by writing them back. And then uh, I, I spend a lot of time making trips upstate to, to visit folks, too. Yes, spend a decent amount of time in our fine uh, correctional facilities. Yeah. 
How many cases do you have right now? I have probably somewhere in the low 20s right now, and I would say six or seven of those are wrongful conviction cases. When did you bring you – have, you have an associate working for you now, right? Yes. When did you decide to bring an associate on? Uh, decide, so that happened very organically too. Um, Joel Wertheimer, who joined me about six months ago, um, had clerked for a judge in the Southern District with uh, another lawyer who works with or worked with my wife. And he had been working for President Obama for some time, and uh, then he was working for Governor Cuomo and uh, decided that he wanted to get back into the active practice of law. And he fantasized about this idea of being a civil rights lawyer. He was talking to his co-clerk about this, and she said, that's funny. I work with a woman whose husband does that. And uh, about a week or so after that, Joel and I got lunch. And about a day or two after that, I decided to bring him on. So it happened very quickly. Yeah. What do you think the most difficult part of your practice is? Mm. Um you know, being a solo, you know, doing, having to do everything sure. uh, myself and not having support staff is, mm-hmm. is a real challenge. I think we were talking about this a little bit before yeah. uh, we started recording here. Um, you know, I think probably my next hire, as much as I would love to, to build up with more lawyers, it's got to be uh, to get some administrative help because, you know, I do everything from you know, try cases to go to the post office when we have to, you know, mail out a package and, um, you know, and everything in between. So it's, you know, I have some help now, but basically it's, it's just us. Yeah. It's interesting too, because you're as a solo, your practice is so different from our practice, but you, you mentioned earlier that you still have to do the things that all of us have to do, which is be involved in bar associations and, go to networking events and meet people? Because I'm sure a lot of your best cases are probably going to come from referrals from other attorneys. Yeah, exactly. All my case, I mean, all my, other than getting letters from prisoners, all my cases are coming from other lawyers. Yeah. Interesting. Do you want to transition to the questions? Yeah. So The we're, questions. We're, we're, we do like a, a fun little cross-examination with our guests where we ask you some real fast questions. You can give us the kind of first answer that comes to your mind mm, dangerous. Um, <laughs> and okay. uh yeah so we'll take it from there favorite law school class that would be capital punishment law and litigation with brian stevenson least favorite law school class mm, uh property that's a common answer it is the common answer i hate property yeah i do not like i know property. i remember you saying yeah that you hated property on, on one of these podcasts before. <laughs> I, I say it every day. Even though that's what you do. First thing I say when I wake up in the morning, I hate property. Oh. Okay. All right. Hit me. Um, best jail to visit. <laughs> um, you know, Sing Sing has some beautiful views of the Hudson River, although they also have a breakneck staircase that is... Uh, treacherous experience every time I have to walk up it in particular. The steps are about a foot high each. It's insane. I'm sure it's violating all kinds of ADA and other <laughs> regulations. Um, 
But actually, you know, I my experiences in state correctional facilities have been very good. I've, you know, with as a lawyer, and you know, that's a big caveat. Uh, the staff has always been very professional with me. Just the, the wait, part. the wait times are awful. In my experience. Yeah, there's a lot of waiting. That's true. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of bars to open and close. So I, I don't get too bent out of shape over that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I haven't really had bad experiences uh, going into the prisons. Are you are you working exclusively in New York? Can you do anything outside of, this, of the state? Um, I, you know, I'm open to doing it. I it's presents some logistical issues. Sure. I have a couple of cases in New Jersey that I'm doing. Um, but so far that's it. But for the right case, I would, you know, I would definitely do some traveling. Outside of Rudy, the, the matter that you handled at Hughes Hubbard that had the most long-term impact on you. Hmm. Um, I would have to say, I mean, I'm probably going to point to another pro bono case. Well, it, this is not fair, actually, because I worked on another wrongful conviction case while I was at Hughes Hubbard, so that's my answer. Um, where sh- about three months, two, three months after I left Hughes Hubbard and started my practice, we found out that that client was having her conviction vacated. Wow. So that, so that, was, that became another client for your civil rights practice? Uh, no, actually, believe it or not, another lawyer from Hughes Hubbard got inspired, I think, by, <laughs> by the example wow. I said and, and did something similar. Uh, went out, struck out on her own, and uh, took took this client on as a client. Biggest parallel between home brewing and lawyering? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, it takes too long. <laughs> you know, you're, you're stuck when you're brewing, you're stuck there all day and litigation, you're usually stuck there for about four or five years. So favorite beer, my favorite beer might be, uh, Duvel, uh, which is another Belgian ale. One of the ones I, I thought this one was, was pretty good. No, I liked it. Yeah. This is, this is a great one. I like the Belgian, the Belgian beers. One piece of advice for lawyers at either medium size or big law firms who are thinking about going out on their own? Uh, well, this is going to be pretty trite, but, um, you know, just to do it, to, to make the jump that it, that it is possible. And, you know, people at Hughes Hubbard, partners, you know, when I told them that this was my idea, they told me, am I allowed to curse on this? Sure. They told me, you're out of your fucking mind. We don't curse curse enough on this podcast. Um, You know, that was pretty much the reaction I got from everybody. And part of me thought that that was true too. But I'm so happy that I I did that. I mean, it was the best professional choice I've ever made. And I'm very, very happy right now. So making that jump, um, you know, I had another lawyer who, another civil rights lawyer who, gave me a push that, you know, said that to me, just do it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so that's what I would say to anyone to who, who takes a non-traditional path from big law. I feel like that's always the reaction that I hear. I wonder why that is. I mean, you know, it's, uh, the establishment, we're all, we're all funneled into that world and it's, it's sort of hard to, to see beyond it sometimes. But, um, I mean, admittedly switching from, you know, practicing defense at a big international law firm to 
being a plaintiff's civil rights lawyer with one client yeah. was a pretty extreme uh, <laughs> zag. So, All right. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. This is a great conversation. It was great being here. Thank you here. so much. Thanks for having me. 